please take in your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 28 to 30. And if a sermon outline is something that's helpful for you, please pull that out and um, follow along with that. An email told about an encounter that Barbara Walters had her second time she visited Afghanistan. The first time she was there, she recognized that the women walked traditionally four or five steps behind their husbands as a show of respect and love and a part of their culture. But since that time, there had been kind of a cultural revolution, and the women were no longer required to walk behind their husbands kind of in a position of servitude. And so when the second time she saw this, she went up to one of the ladies and asked her, you know, you no longer have to walk five paces behind your husband, so why do you still do it? And the lady looked at her and without hesitation said one word, landmines. It seemed that she had found a practical solution for a potential problem. Well, this morning we want to talk about how do we handle the problems of life? How do you handle problems when they come so that you can grow through them and not be destroyed by them? I remember years ago my mentor said, Barry, there's two ways to handle every problem. You can take it as a threat and have it drain your energy, or you can take it as a challenge, believing that God is going to drive you through it, guide you through it, and it will give you energy. And he also said this, whenever you're in a problem, something you don't understand, there are two questions that you can ask that will lead you to a point of, of growing and maturing and having God direct you. And the two questions are this. Number one, God, what would you have me to do? And number two, what would you have me to learn? So we come before God and say, Lord, I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to do what it is. Would you help me? And when we do that, it puts us in a position where our problems can become something that moves us ahead. Now, this morning I want to begin with kind of a series of questions where one will lead into the other. And the first question is this, do you believe that God is aware of everything? Every situation, every problem, every good thing that happens to you through the course of a day, a week, a month, and a year, and if we go all out through the course of your whole whole life, do you believe God's aware of that? And if you believe that, do you believe that in every situation that happens to you, that God has a way that He wants you to respond? So in every situation, every problem, and every benefit, God has a way for you to respond. And if you believe that He's aware of everything, and if you believe that there's a way that He wants you to respond, the third question is, do you believe that good can come out of every problem, every difficulty, every hassle that you have? Now some of you are saying, well, Bear, I believe 90% of that's true. But I believe that in some circumstances, some situations, some problems are so great that no good will ever come out of it. And others of you are saying, I absolutely believe it. I have experienced it at one point in my life. I could never have imagined that good coming out of my mom dying, of losing that money, or having my child die, or finding out about the affair, or going through that depression, or having a struggling marriage, or going through cancer, or being addicted. But now when I look back on it, I can see that God used that situation for good to come out. I am different. I am better. I am at a place I wouldn't have been without this problem, and I am glad I'm here. Walter Mayer in Decision Magazine tells a story of a man who had a boat out on the ocean and the boat sunk. And he ended up being able to paddle to an uninhabited island. And when he got there, he made a little bit of a hut 
out of the debris of his boat and what else he could find. And every day he would stand in this hut looking over the horizon, over the water, looking for a ship that might come to, to save him. Well, one day he was looking in the, he was in the forest looking for food. And when he came back out to the beach, he saw that something had happened and his little hut was engulfed in flames. It was burning up. Well, he was dejected. He says, now I have nothing. And that light, when he laid down on the beach to go to sleep, he was dejected, sad. He was discouraged. Well, the next morning he woke up to see that there was a ship docked outside, outside his uninhibited island. And when the captain came in, he said, I saw your signal fire and we came to save you. See, he had to lose everything in order to receive the one thing that he needed. And you know, friends, what God sometimes does? God sometimes takes things out of our life so that he can give us what we really need. He sometimes will take my life and he'll take your life and he'll take us totally out of control so that he can get at the area of our life he needs to get to, he needs to change. Romans 8, 28 to 30, talks about how this happens, and we're going to look at it. Let's read together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many believers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. When problems and suffering come on your outline, I will remember three things. First of all, I will remember that everything works together for good. That is a statement. Verse 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So all things work together for good. Do, do we have to do anything? The answer is yes. To every promise, there is a premise. There is a starting point. There are two qualifiers in this verse that define, that tell us what we have to do in order for all things to work together for good. The first thing it says is everything will work together for good for those who love God. If you don't love God, don't expect God to bring the pieces together for, the, for good to come out of negative situations. Now, what does it mean to love God? We can, you can go out for lunch today. You can go up to a table, probably talk to somebody you don't know and say, do you love God? Oh, sure, I love God. So what does it mean to love God? John in John 14, 15 gives us this definition of what it means to love God. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. The test of love, friends, is always obedience. Wives, husbands, how do you know you love each other? You obey the commandment to keep your vows, to love each other, as Christ loved the church, to do the things that need to happen. Love always carries with it the condition of obedience. And we know that it's not always easy, is it? Remember the old saying that says, if it were easy, everyone would be doing it? Well, not everybody's loving God. We struggle. We struggle with pride, exaggerating and lying, with lust, with honesty, with envy, with greed, with loving those who are hard to love. We find it hard not to judge, not to gossip, and not to be jealous of others who have or are doing what we want to do. We struggle with patience. We get aggravated. We say things that we wish we could take back. Anybody ever do that? Man, where did that come from? Was that my outer voice or my inner voice? This kind of thing. See, you know what God knows? God knows our tendency to sin. He knows that we have sinned. He knows that we will sin because we are imperfect people. But you know what he's looking for in my life and in your life? He's looking that we would have a desire to overcome sin, that we would seek him. See, the way that we talked about last week, the way that we overcome sin is by not letting any gaps get between us and God. We overcome sin by submitting ourselves to God. See, there are some sins in my life that I know I can't control. 
And so what I have to do on my own, I have to come to God and say, God, you know this habit, you know this pattern, and I humble myself before you. I give you permission to do whatever in my life you need to do to help me overcome this pattern of disobedience. And when God knows, when we are serious to the point of humility and vulnerability, God will begin to work in our lives, changing our behavior so that we can love him more perfectly. The second condition for all things to work together for good, it says, for those who live according to his plan. Are we, am I, are you committed to living out his purpose? Now, what has to happen, friends, for you and I to live out his purpose? One of the things that happened here a few weeks ago is Steve Farrell was baptized in our first service. And baptism is significant. And when you go under the water, it means you're dying to your own nature. It means that you're dying to your own ways. You're dying to old habits. You're dying to sin. You're dying to being your own Lord of your own life. When you come up out of the water, it says that you are rising to a new way of living. You're going to live for God. Kyle Eidelman in his book, Not a Fan, said that if there could be a slogan for the Christian life, it would probably be, come and die. Wouldn't that be great to put in front of our church, our slogan for the year, come and die? What does that mean? It means that God calls us to come and die to ourselves so that we might live for him. See, we have a symbol behind me. The symbol is a cross. You know what the cross is? The cross is a symbol of death. And not just a symbol of death, but one of the worst deaths anybody could die. We are called to come and die, but if there's another symbol that typifies what we are as Christians, it would be an empty, it would be a tomb with a stone rolled away, signifying rise up and live. See, before we can rise up and live, we have to come and die. If we don't come and die, we will never rise up and live. And let me tell you what I've discovered. I have discovered that when I die to my life and live to God's, I'm better off every time. That I would rather live for God than live for myself. One of the things that kept me from committing my life to Christ as a late teenager was I was afraid that I would be bored. I would like to have fun. I like to have adventure. But when I became a Christian, I realized I had no idea the adventure that God had laid out to me. Because, friends, living the Christian life is a relationship where in cooperation with God, you are called to reach your potential. You are called to risk. You are called to live. We don't sit back in a corner and, and do boring stuff. We are called to be on the front edge for God, becoming who He wants us to be. The second thing we need to remember to overcome the hard times of life is that my purpose is clear. God has given us, He given us a purpose, and that purpose is clear. In verse 29, it tells us what our purpose is. We, are, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The word predestined means decided upon beforehand. The word conform means copies of the original. It was decided upon beforehand that we would become copies of the original Jesus. You know what your, your purpose is? Your purpose is to set your sights to be unrelenting, to say, I am not going to allow any deviation I, as much as I can. My goal is to become like the original Jesus. MSNBC did a report some time ago on a, no, on a group of new vegetarians. Now, they interviewed one of these new vegetarians, and the young lady whose name was Christy Pugh, she was 28 years old, and as they were interviewing her on what it meant to live the vegetarian lifestyle, this is what she said, I usually eat vegetarian, but I really like sausage. Well, the old, the traditional hardcore vegetarians got really upset because she was saying, well, I'm going to eat vegetables most, I'm going to be a vegetarian most of the time, but I'm still going to slip a little sausage in on the side. 
And the vegetarians were upset, and they said, you can't call yourself genuine vegetarians and do that. So this new group, Christy Pugh and her group, came up with a new name for their group. You know what they're now called? Flexitarians. They say, we can be vegetarians, but we still can eat a little sausage. We can still do some of the things we want to do. See, as Christians, we have to be careful not to be flexitarian in our commitment to Jesus. Now, does that mean we're going to be perfect? Does that mean we're not going to fail? Of course not. We're going to fail, but it means we need to be unrelenting and not say things like, you know, I'm really committed to Jesus except for. I'm really committed to Jesus except for this. In other words, we want to have 90% of our rooms for ourselves, for God, but we have 10% that we keep for the things except for. God is saying our purpose is clear. We are to become images of the original Jesus. Number three, We need to remember that to live strong and committed to Jesus in the midst of problems, we need to remember that God's plan is personal and is complete. It is clear, but it's also personal and it's also complete. Now, what does complete mean? It means that it covers and involves all of our lives for as long as we live. In other words, there was never a time, there was never a time in your life that God did not know you, love you, and have a plan for you. There was never a time that God did not know you, love you, and have a plan for you. Now, what does that mean? Verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what is the personalness of of your purpose? First of all, you have been called. I have been called. You have been called. Called carries with it the idea of being summoned, of being invited. You have been called to three specific things. You have been called. You have been invited to accept Christ as your Savior, to enter into a personal one-on-one relationship with the living God. You are not called to a to-do list. You are called to a relationship where you say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to get to know you. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to listen for your Holy Spirit, and I'm going to become a disciple. We are called to have that happen. Number two, we are to be called means that we receive special benefits. As a child of God, you receive benefits that people who aren't child of God don't receive. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have the promise of eternal life. You have the opportunity to, to have a perfect God give you perfect direction for every situation. Now, it might not always be easy. It might not always be what you want. But you can always go. You have the benefit of having a special relationship with God and the promise of heaven. And number three, you have been called to live your life a particular way, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You are called to be a disciple. You are called to have special benefits. And you are called to be a light on the hill, to be a city set apart that everyone can see. In other words, it should be obvious. If anybody spends any amount of time with us, it should be obvious that we are followers of Jesus. It should be obvious that you love God. It should be obvious that you are imitating God, that you are taking out the bad, that you are putting in the new. It should be obvious that God is number one in your life, and in your own way, imperfect way, good way, you are seeking to follow him. Now, secondly, you have been justified. Being justified means that the repentant sinner is free of guilt and declared righteous. What a great thing. You have been justified. Justified, if you break the word down, just as if I never sinned. You have been declared right with God. Anybody here ever sinned? Anybody sinned this morning that you know of? We all sin, don't we? So I have to say, God, forgive me of the sins I don't even know I did. 
And God is, and what's the condemnation for sin? Spiritually, it is death. And what does God do? He has removed the judgment. He has taken upon himself the punishment I deserve, and he has declared me righteous, guaranteeing me a relationship with God and a place in heaven. And number three, it says we, those who he has called, he's also glorified. Now, what does it mean to be glorified? To be glorified means to, to receive something, to be recognized as someone. And I believe that glorified often refers to our eternal destination. Every child of God is promised, assured a place in heaven. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, you will go through hard times. But when you get to heaven, you will be recognized as a child of God. In Romans 1, Paul says this, And if children, then heirs, and if heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Your worst suffering will look minute compared to the glory God has for you. That doesn't minimize your suffering. It maximizes God's glory. It doesn't minimize your pain, but it says in comparison to the pain, what God has, you will be blown away. And you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that I get to heaven, I'm going to say, why didn't I, why wasn't I more committed? Why wasn't, wasn't I more grounded? Why wasn't I more faithful? And so I de- I'm determined that even when things are crazy, God, I trust you. God, I want to serve you. And now we want to go into more of a practical part of our message. How to grow through life's hard times. I want to give you four things you can do when life is hard to stay connected to Jesus. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is a starting place. Number one, when you're going through a hard time, give thanks. How's that for a start? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says this. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. We are to be thankful. The passage doesn't necessarily, does not say be thankful for all circumstances. It says be thankful in all circumstances. Thank you, God. So what, what happens, friend, and let me say this is an act of the will, not an act of the emotion. We're not going to feel possibly like giving thanks. But God is saying, in the most difficult of circumstances, I want you to practice being thankful. I want you to declare thankfulness to me, that I am with you. Three things that thankfulness does when you are in a tough spot. Number one, giving thanks reminds us that we're not alone that we, we are affirming the presence of God. When I'm going through a difficult time and I say, thank you, God, that in this situation you are present with me. The second thing, giving thanks affirms our trust in God. When you give thanks, it's like you come before God and you open up yourself to receive what God has for you. See, when you come into a situation and you get angry and you just shut yourself off, you are, you are shutting off the very, the, the, yourself off to receive anything God might have for you in that setting. But when you're thankful, you're saying, God, thank you for this situation. I know you're going to guide me. You're going to give me the resources I need. God, together we're going to get through it. When we are thankful, we enable ourselves to receive God's help. And number three, giving thanks keeps us from being defined by the problem that we have. See, if you are left alone with a serious problem, it is potential that you will begin to define yourself by that problem. If a person has cancer, they can say, well, I'm a cancer victim. Well, that's not our first definition of who we are. If you've gone through, a, uh, gone through an affair, if you are, have been divorced, whatever the problem might be, that problem can define you. Friend, that's not what is define us as God's people. 
We are to be defined as a child of God. And then being defined as a child of God gives us the resources we need to live out the problem as he has called us to do. But if we live without God, we can be defined by the problems rather than work through and resolve the problems with God's direction. Number two, I will choose to trust. In Joshua 24, Joshua is standing before the children of Israel, and this is what he says. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will choose the Lord. What was he doing? Joshua was making a declaration of trust, and he was encouraging other people to do this. He said, We're going to, we've got some tough times ahead. We've had some tough times behind. But what I'm going to do, I am going to trust God. You know what happens when you choose to trust God? When you trust God, it changes the way you think about your problem. If you are left on your own to deal with your problem, you will think about your problem in one way. But if you trust God with your problem, it will change the way you think about your problem, and it changes the way that you deal with the problem that you have. Number three, seek encouragement. Seek encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, So encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are already doing. What is he saying? He's saying we were never made to live life like a robot, to live in isolation. In fact, let me say this. The Bible tells us that without the support of others, we will live at a level lower than what God desires for us to live. If you live alone without support of other people, you will live at a level lower than God wants you to live. What God wants you to do is have relationships with others so that you can attain a higher level of living, a higher level of peace, a higher level of direction, a higher level of encouragement. When I, what happens to me is I can have something come into my mind and I can become, if it's something significant, I can begin to fixate on it. And when I fixate on it, it goes around in circles in my mind and it affects my emotions. And once that happens, I I have learned that the best way to overcome that cycle is to call my mentor and say, Duane, I'm missing something. Would you help me? And I tell him what's going on. There has not been one time we have not stopped the cycle and got myself, got, and I've gotten back on track where I'm able to say, God, now I understand, now I'm able to live. Left to our own. Our thoughts will go crazy. And friends, let me tell you this. We need to really be aware of the spiritual world because demonic forces will look at our weaknesses and it will, they will impact and try to drag us down. So have relationships where you can be encouraged, where you can be directed, where you can be corrected, somebody to help you walk through life. And number four, remember God's faithfulness. Remember what God has done for you. Remember that God has been faithful to you in the past. Throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites would go, they would see God encounter something, see God engage them in something, deliver them from something. You know what they would do? They would build a monument. And this monument was a monument of God's faithfulness. They could always go back. Remember the Red Sea monument? Well, God got us through here. Remember the manna? God got us through here. They would build monuments helping us, helping them remember God's faithfulness. In Genesis chapter 20, Joseph is revealing, he's doing the big revealing himself as not only the second highest in Egypt, but he is revealing that he is the brother that these other brothers sold to slavery. And you know the story. His brothers were 
jealous of Joseph. They were fed up with him. He had done some things to aggravate this. They sold him as a slave. He went to Egypt. He ended up as in a position of, of a, a leader's, working in a leader's home. He was falsely accused. He ended up in jail. In jail, he helped some guys who said they would remember him. They forgot about him from two years. Ultimately, he gets out of jail and rises to the second highest place in all of Egypt. So here is brothers. They're coming, needing grain. They come before Joseph. He kind of plays with them a bit. And then he reveals to them it is me, Joseph, your brother. Now, what do you think that his brothers are thinking? This is not going to be pretty. This is not going to be good for us. And what does Joseph say? You intended to harm me. He was honest. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. What a statement. As he looked back on his life, he more than likely felt pain, he felt alone, he felt danger, he was hungry. He probably wondered if his life would ever change, if he would ever experience stability, if he would ever again have peace. And then looking back, it's always easier to look back. He said, when I look back, I said that God was not only with me, but he was working out every detail of my life to accomplish his divine plan. Friends, we need to remember God's faithfulness. There is no problem, there is no situation in your life that God cannot use to shape and develop and use in your life to help you reach your potential. Every problem can help you toward your potential. Every problem has a possibility. Every problem is put in your life to help you become who God wants you to be. But what do we have to do? We have to trust. We have to listen. We have to learn. We have to be vulnerable. We have to say, God, I give you thanks in this. We have to put ourselves in a position where we will not sequester ourselves away from God, but we will present ourselves to God so that He can work through us in the situation we're in. Barbara and Regina Leiniger were sisters, and their parents settled in colonial Pennsylvania in the mid to late 1700s. One fall day on 1775, these two girls, 11 and 9, were in the family's cabin with their brother and father when two rogue Indian warriors burst through the door. These two men were not friendly. The father offered the men tobacco, something to eat, and told the girls then to take the water bucket and to go get water, but to not come back till the men were gone to hide. Well, while the girls were getting water, they heard a gunshot which was her father being killed. They hid in the grass, but later these braves found them. And days became weeks as, with, as they were drug away, and with this Indian group they marched west. Barbara did her best to stay close to Regina, and when they were together she reminded her younger sister of a song that their mother had taught them. And the song was this. Alone, yet not alone am I, though in the solitude so drear. I feel my Savior always nigh. He comes the weary hours to cheer. I am with him and he with me. I therefore cannot lonely be. And before they would go to sleep every night, they would sing this song and be reminded of God's closeness. And they realized that as long as they were together, they would get through this. Well, one day the Indian tribe decided to split, and one group took Barbara, the other group took the daughter Regina. After several weeks, the group Barbara with this was at came to a large village, an Indian village, where no English was permitted. They were forced to farm fields and tan hides. They wore buckskin and moccasins. Well, three years later, Barbara escaped. She ran through the woods for 11 days, finally coming to Fort Pitt. 
She pleaded with the officers to go and try to find her sister. She's still out there, she said. But they said it's futile, we'll never be able to do it. So they reunited her with her mother and her brother who had made it through the attack. Well, six years later, Barbara, six years later, Barbara was married, raising her own family near her mother. And they received word that 206 other captives had escaped and been taken to Fort Carlisle. Well, her and her mother, Barbara and her mother, packed up everything they had, and they quick went to see if potentially their sister, their daughter, Regina, was there. Well, the sight of the captives stunned them. These individuals had spent years isolated in villages. They were emaciated and confused. They were so pale, they blended in with the snow. Barbara and her mother walked up and down the line, calling Regina's name, searching faces, and speaking German. No one spoke back. The mother and daughter turned away, their eye, tears in their eyes, and told the colonel in charge that their, da- their sister, their daughter Regina, was not there. Well, the ur- colonel urged them, are you sure? Are there any blemishes or scars or birthmarks? There were none. Is there any necklaces or bracelets? No, there are none. And he says, is there anything? And he said, well, there, are, there any, are there any songs or memories? And all of a sudden, both the mother and daughter thought about the song they had sang as children. Maybe they thought. So they slowly began to walk up and down the row again. And as they walked, they sang the song. Alone, yet not alone am I. And for a long time, there was no response. The faces seemed confused by the song. And all of a sudden, Barbara heard a loud cry. And a tall, slender girl ran out of the crowd toward her mother, embraced her mom, and began to sing the song along with her. Regina had not recognized her mom or her sister. She had forgotten how to speak German and English. But she remembered a song that had been placed in her heart as a young girl. Friends, we need to remember the faithfulness of God. We need to remember the loyalty of God. We need to remember that God is trustworthy and he is loving and he is kind and he will never leave us or desert us. And we need to put that so deep within our memory that when we forget everything else, when other parts of life become hard and difficult, we will remember that our God is faithful. And this morning we want to continue. We want to celebrate communion, and we want to remember what God has done for us. I want to ask those who are helping with communion to please come. And as they come, I want to read a passage from 1 Corinthians. Listen to these words. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is not the table of First Baptist Church. This is a table of our Lord. And if you have received Jesus as Lord and Savior, we invite you to participate with us.